Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, Episode 2, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. So our topic for today's episode is anxiety and how that has everything to do with paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. So if you're a new listener, my name is Rick. Um, I'm here with my co-producer and friend, Becky. Hi. Hello, Becky. Um, I've already actually said hello to her earlier today, but I said a recorded hello to her just now. More fun that way. It's more formal, yeah. So uh, we want to start off with a, a story that uh, Becky wants to share about a time in her life when she was feeling a lot of anxiety, and she turned to this practice you've probably heard about because it's pretty hot in our culture right now. It's called mindfulness. She turned to mindfulness to try to help ease her anxiety. So Becky, tell us your story. Well, hi, listeners. Um, it's so um, awesome to have you back here uh, with us. And before I jump into that story, I feel like I need to preface a little confession here. I'm kind of a hippie. Um, I have an actual Himalayan sea salt lamp in my living room. Um, I think that it ionizes the air and helps with calmness in the in the home. Um, I also make my own laundry detergent, and I like to ferment things. So you and know, you use the word groovy a lot. Groovy, yeah. No, you don't. Really. I don't. <laughs> but I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, and so I'm kind of a hippie. And so whenever someone has like an organic remedy to something. I'm just naturally drawn to it because I just, I want to keep chemicals out of my life and I, um, I, I want to keep toxins out of my life. Um, so a few years ago, I was just suffering from a high amount of anxiety and depression and a good friend of mine who I trust said, Hey, have you heard about this thing called mindfulness? And there's lots of kinds of mindfulness, but this particular one was a very self-focused mindful practice. It was a lot about just focusing on yourself and all of the prompts were about paying ridiculous attention um, to yourself. And as I started doing it, I realized that my anxiety was actually getting a lot worse. It was just spiraling out of control. Um, And if you want to read this whole story, uh, just go to jesuscenterlife.com, find our podcast page, click on episode two. You can read the whole story about um, uh, this journey. Um, And I realized that the reason why it was not working is because it really didn't align um, with what I knew Jesus said about worry, um, while mindfulness was asking me to pay ridiculous attention to myself, um, I knew that the Bible said to focus on Jesus and he would give me rest and that he would be my strength um, and that I was able to give my worries to Jesus. Um, and it was about that time that I started reading Rick's book, Jesus Centered Life, um, and ultimately that's what landed me here. Um, and that really helped me refocus um, a different kind of mindfulness into my life that actually took away my anxiety. Now, what's interesting is that this whole mindfulness movement uh, sort of kicked off by this woman named Ellen Langer, who's a Harvard psychologist. I did not know that. N- now, you know, see what you, you I already learned as long as today. everyone who's listening to this as well, is, is learning something right yeah. now in this very moment. So Ellen Langer wrote um, the book Mindfulness, and it kind of kicked off this whole thing. 
And it, what's interesting is that the way that she defines mindfulness is not exactly the way it gets lived out or mm-hmm. propagated to people like you that when you yeah. pick this up. Mindfulness is really simply pain. It's funny. It's really actually part of the name of our podcast. It means paying ridiculous attention to things. Yeah. It means being aware. And I love the way she describes it. It's like when you're on vacation to a new place you've never been before, you have this kind of heightened sense of awareness of everything around you because you don't know how to get from point A to point C. So you're paying close attention to everything around you. It's not in the background anymore. It's not part of the wallpaper because it's all new to you. So she said, uh, mindfulness is like bringing that into your everyday life so that you're awake and alive to things that are around you. The way it got propagated to you is to be hyper-mindful about yourself. Yep. Focus on your energy. Focus on your body. Pay attention to your thoughts. So so mindfulness, uh, I mean, it kind of sounds like a new agey kind of hippie word, and that's why a lot of Christians are like suspicious of it. I think it's actually a fantastic thing, Yeah. but it's like anything else. It's like a chainsaw. A chainsaw is a very powerful, dangerous tool, and it can be used for good or for evil, like, you know, the Texas Chainsaw yeah, Massacre. That, that was, was bad. evil. Yeah. But it's a powerful tool, so it just depends on how you intend to use it. And what I love about your story um, is that you are using this powerful tool, but, but it wasn't in the right way. Mm-hmm. It actually made things worse rather than better for you. And then you had this change of perspective and thought, what if I use it instead and point it at Jesus? Yeah, and I still get to wear my yoga pants and diffuse <laughs> clary sage with sweet orange. But you do you still drink kombucha? I love kombucha. I drink it every day. And, I brew it at home. And in and you you know what that is. I, I'm assuming you know what yeah, that is. Yeah, it's like live cultures yeah. that I drink. That's enough. Bacteria. Yeah, that's enough. <laughs> it's yeah. delicious. Um, I'll take you uh, I'll take your word for that. So uh, uh, I did write about mindfulness in the Jesus-centered life because I think that is so central to living a life that pays uh, ridiculous attention to Jesus and to others. Mm -hmm. So I've said in in the book that there's really two questions that our whole life can revolve around um, in a very simplified way. The first question is, who do I say Jesus is? The same question Jesus asked his disciples early on in his ministry when he said, who are those people saying that I am? And they they said, oh, they say you're a prophet or a teacher or John the Baptist, you know, Elijah come back to life. Wrong answer. Um, and then he, he asked his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And I'm saying that's a di- question not just to his disciples then, it's a question throughout the ages to every follower of Jesus. Who do you say I am? So that's question number one. The question number two is, who does Jesus say I am? And we get to participate with him in that question, in that quest, trying to help people come to understand who they really are, not who the mirrors around them tell them they are, not who the naysayer voices in their life tell them they are, but who does Jesus say they are? So we get to help people find the answer to that question, too. So those two questions can really form our life. One is, toward Jesus, who do I say you are? The other is, to, to the people in our surroundings, who how are how can we help them answer that question? Who does Jesus say you are? So those two questions really form the the, the orbit of our life, and mindfulness helps you with both. 
mindfulness means you're mindful about uh, Jesus and you're mindful about other people. So uh, it reminds me of this powerful story that's in toward the end of John's Gospel in, in John chapter 21. Um, it's a it's kind of one of those stories that I call mud puddle stories because we know about it, we think we know it, but because we blow past it so quickly, we don't really sense what a surprising, incredible story this is. So this is uh, the story of what happened after Jesus' resurrection, and the disciples were uh, in this kind of liminal space between this incredible thing that's going on that has never happened before and what life is going to look like for them. So just to set the context a little bit, um, so these are his closest friends who went into hiding around the time that he was arrested and then tortured and then crucified. They just disappeared from the scene from the most part. John was there at the cross, but you don't ha have any record that the rest of them were anywhere. And we know for sure that Peter went into hiding. So they went into hiding because they thought they were next. Um, so imagine living in a place in a time when suddenly you were being hunted and you just saw your leader crucified and murdered. It's like living in ISIS territory if you're an American. Sounds absolutely terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, you can't, you can't go to sleep at night not wondering, oh, is somebody going to knock on my door and, th and they're coming for me? It would have been paralyzing, I think. I think you just would have felt paralyzed. Yeah, looking over your shoulder all the time, what's going to happen next? They're scared. And then this incredible thing happens. Oh, he was crucified. We, we know it. But now he's resurrected? What does this mean? I mean, I know he told us this, kind of, but what's going on? And More like, does, does anyone remember that time when Jesus was talking about <laughs> like what would happen after? Did anyone pay attention? Yeah. And so they're in this place. And they're kind of not knowing what to do, and what is, what is the rest of They've already left their life behind, but now what does that mean? Because now they thought their life was going to be with Jesus, and he's gone. So what do we do now? And so they're kind of hanging out, and Peter says, hey, I'm going to go fishing tonight. Anyone want to come? Let's go back to work. Yeah. I mean, so what we're talking about here, there was, I think, what, eight people on, that ended up on the boat? Let's see. Let's count them out. Simon, Peter, Thomas... Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, two other disciples, so six or seven of them are on the boat, and four of those people actually are owners of fishing companies. So Peter owned his own fishing company, and the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, owned their own fishing company, or they worked for their father. So they're professional fishermen. That's the life they left behind. So they say, let's go out and fish tonight, because that's when you do it. That's when the fish are nearest the surface. So they go out on their boat to fish, and they catch nothing all night. They fish all night, and they catch nothing. So just put yourself in their place. So they're confused, scared. They, they don't know what's coming next. They say, let's go back to what we know. Let's go fish. At least we can control that. At least we know how to do that. And now we're failing at that. And not only failing, they're just like absolute failures at it. Now what? And they're on the boat in the morning. Now it's past the time when you can normally catch fish. Um, they're not near the surface anymore, so they're done. They're coming back toward the shore, and they see this guy on the shore, and the guy on the shore goes, hey, friends, have you, have you caught any fish? And they're like, no, <laughs> no. 
And the guy on the shore says, why don't you throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So again, think about this. They're professional fishermen. They don't know who this guy on the shore is. Sounds cynical. Snarky. Mm-hmm. A little snarky. And they're like, uh, this guy's telling us to throw on the right side of the boat and it's past time to catch fish. And we are professional fishermen, but they do it. They throw it over the right side of the boat and they get this enormous catch. And then John, the disciple that Jesus loved, it says in Scripture, turns to Peter and goes, hey, I think that's the Lord. And they kind of squint their eyes, and, they, and Peter's like, that is the Lord. And he leaps over the side of the boat. Um, they're stripped naked to fish, because that's what men did back then. They, they took off their tunic, and they fished naked at night. So in most translations, it says Peter just kind of wrapped his tunic around him and jumped didn't even get dressed, and he's swimming furiously to the shore, and he gets there before the boat does, because it's dragging this huge net of fish behind it, and Jesus is already there cooking breakfast. He has some fish, and when the boat gets to the shore, he says, bring some of those fish you just caught. Let's have breakfast. So this incredible story starts out with these guys fishing all night and catching nothing. That, That feeling... I mean, I, I've talked about this story with a number of people now, and all you have to do is say, do you know what it feels like to fish all night and catch nothing? And you can hear the room groan. Yes. Yeah, that feels like life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think we can think of ways that, that that kind of feeling spills into our everyday life. You, you work and work and work and give your best, but it's just not enough. Yeah. I mean... Uh, I'm I'm wondering the 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 practical attachment to this feeling leads to the same feelings those guys had. So when you're overwhelmed and you're trying hard and you're doing your best and you still catch no fish all night, it's a scary feeling. It's like, uh-oh. If I'm giving it all and I still haven't gotten anything, what's going to happen to me? It starts to create fear in us. And then Jesus just says, let's have breakfast, <laughs> you know, and I love that simplicity of that part of the story. And I have, I have read this story so many times and it wasn't until Rick really pointed out that, um, that simple moment where he just said, Hey, things are horrible and they're hard and they're scary. And I know that you're anxious about it, but let's just sit and have breakfast. Yeah. Jesus said, um, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you, you'll be able to do anything. But if you don't do that, you won't, be, you won't be able to do anything. So he's made this whole idea of being with him, remaining with him, abiding in him, a central facet of every aspect of our life, and yet it's such a strange word, especially to Americans. Abide and remain are not doer words, so we don't, ha- we don't conjure up a lot of images when somebody tells us to abide. We don't quite know what that means. What does it mean to remain? That's not an active thing. It seems like a passive thing. So it doesn't really connect with us right off the bat. And yet Jesus says, well, the key to everything is that you remain in me. And in this story, what is he doing? He's just asking them to remain with him, Mm -hmm. to have breakfast with him, to be with him. And that's his answer to their fear, anxiety, frustration, confusion, anxiety, all of this stuff rolled up 
you know, all this turmoil inside, his answer to them is, why don't you hang out with me and have breakfast? And, and contrary to that, uh, right now in the self-help section of the bookstore, if you go there, there's all these books. And, and the mindful um, section is, is one that is growing in particular. And, I, you know, some of these authors that I've been seeing that have been putting out these books, and I've opened some of them just because I'm really curious about what is driving this, their books are so hard. You mm. have to change everything, your diet, you have to change your exercise, you have to, you have to figure out what you know, what drives and motivates you, you have to do everything. And it requires extreme self-discipline. And, um, and Jesus says, all you have to do, if, if you're looking for the answer of getting rid of all of this anxiety and all of this fear, just come and remain with me. And that is actually simple. Yeah. You know, we, uh, when we were talking about this a little bit the other day, what uh, jumped out at me is like things like Scientology, which are based on what I know about Scientology, there's a huge number of complicated things you have to do to attain a level of peace and success that you want in life. It's exactly what you're talking about. Um, and people fall for this all the time, because the promise of following a recipe that will lead to the very thing you want the most, success and peace, it, it, people assume that you have to do a bunch of these disciplined kind of things to get that. So that's why they fall for it mm -hmm. every time. All of us long for something that will help us um, reduce the level of anxiety we have. So what's the system that we can use? What's yep. the diet that I what's can be on? What's the strategy? And, and it is very complicated. It reminds me of the thing that Jesus said to the Pharisees. One of the chief things he had against the Pharisees was that they tied up heavy burdens and strapped them to people's backs and they weren't willing to lift a finger to carry those burdens themselves. He was basically saying, you're loading up a mother load of shoulds and tying them to people's backs and saying, this is what you have to do in order to achieve peace or success or whatever. And you're not, you're not even able to lift that yourself. So he's trying to skewer this whole mentality that the way to, to peace and freedom and success is is to tie up a bunch of stuff on your back and carry them. And, and what I resonate with in your mindfulness story is that that's essentially what started happening to you. Mm -hmm. You started putting more and more stuff on your back. So we've, we've complicated this whole deal, and Jesus is trying to uncomplicate it. Um, we've turned abiding in Jesus and remaining in Him into a discipline, into an effort, when actually abide and remain are not effort oriented words in that sense. They're, they're um, getting out of your boat and sitting on the beach and being with Jesus. And at the end of the day, that just requires that you have time and, and mind space to do that, right? And, in, and that's, that's really just the, the, the challenge and the key is how do you, how do you create more time and, and mind space for Jesus? Yeah, and the, the, the profound truth about this abiding thing when he, when he uses the metaphor of abiding and remaining, he's, he's using it in terms of a branch abiding in a vine, and the dead branch, the, the branch that's dying, once it's embedded in the vine, gets new life from the vine, and the life of the vine goes up through the dead branch and then eventually produces fruit, but it's coming from the attachment to the life of the vine. So this is radical thinking for 
us in our everyday life. We think fruit comes out of our effort, out of our doing. And Jesus said, no, fruit comes when you remain in me, because I really have the life that produces that fruit. And I I don't think this is just theologically true, it's practically true. When I began shifting my focus to abiding and remaining in Jesus rather than working my tail off to produce, um, and it's not that we don't work hard, it's that the place that you work from is an abiding place rather than a manufacturing place. So when I shifted my focus to abiding and remaining in Jesus, I started seeing fruit sprout in my life that I had never experienced before. I had more good things to give people. The more deeply I remained in Jesus, I had more good things to give people and more to offer in my work, at home, with my friends. I just had more fruit when I just shifted my focus. So if we're going to shift our focus and we're saying this is not complicated, it's not tying heavy burdens on your back, there are simple ways to shift your focus that, that don't require a lot of effort. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's, let's offer some examples from our own life. So for me, um, now these are all personal to us, but capture the essence of this as you hear us talk about this. So for me, one of those ways is I have steadfastly resisted getting a smartphone, um, even though in every way, every all of the people in my life, especially at work, think I'm ridiculously crazy for we not having a smartphone. sometimes make fun of him. Exactly. And, and um, they're really funny jokes, usually. <laughs> um, but I, I, and I'm kind of now, because it's so eccentric to not have a smartphone, I, have, I had a flip phone up until a year ago. And so that was super easy to joke about. I had a flip phone. I just saw today, though, that uh, Andrew Luck, the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts, all-pro all quarterback, there's a uh, story in the sports about him. He got a new phone. He replaced his old flip phone with a new flip phone. So there are other eccentric people, and I don't know why Andrew Luck does this, but the reason I do it is a, a smartphone. If I had access to email and um, Google and apps in my pocket, I, I know that I'd be doing what I see everybody else doing, which is filling every gap in their life with that thing. Mm -hmm. Every awkward, unplanned moment, you have a ready thing to fill up that gap. And I'm saying, well, I want my gaps to be reserved as much as possible for me to be present to Jesus. So if I don't have a smartphone, then I've just allowed myself more awkward gaps in my day, where if I'm if I respond to the nudge in those gaps, I can be present to Jesus. And by that, I mean I can talk to him about what's going on in me. I can thank him for something that just happened. I can share with him the challenge that I'm facing that day. I can ask him what's on his heart. I can use these gap moments that would have been filled up by my smartphone to just be present to him, to remain with him. So that's what I do. That's why I do it. Um, so I, I now have a slide phone. He has a slide phone. Yeah, it's it's a one. It's an upgrade. I I wouldn't be able to do that, but I um, one of the things I did do, and this was not my idea. I actually um, I listened to um, a podcast um, that was talking about minimizing um, it from the minimalists, and um, he talked about minimizing technology. And so one of the things he suggested is that if you have a smartphone, you know you've got that front bar that has like your most important and most used apps. And I took the like chat and the Facebook and the um, email and I I moved that like three slides over on my phone and on I replaced in that bar 
um, my podcast app, my um, Kindle app, um, my Bible reading app, and um, my library app. (laughs) My library app. Um, And I did that because then if I did have those gap times, I would use it as a chance to catch up on, you know, maybe a couple pages of a book that I've been reading or to finish listening to a podcast that I've been um, listening to. And I use some of these um, kinds of things to pay attention to Jesus. Um, I wrote a post about it. It's called um, How This Girl Is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And we'll have it listed on this episode page as well. Um, But I talk about how I I use technology in a way that helps me pay attention to Jesus. Um, I also am very distracted by technology, and I think that I may be borderline technology addicted, and I'm working on that. But I'm trying to use that um, in a way that I can also pay attention to Jesus. Yeah, that's shrewd. You're you're saying, I'm not going to try to battle this massive momentum in my life. I'm just going to shift its focus a little bit, Mm -hmm. which really goes back to the whole mindfulness in the first place. So you're not going to throw out mindfulness as a valid and valuable thing to do. You're just going to shift the focus of your mindfulness to Jesus. So shifting the focus rather than fighting against the thing that uh, you're already embedded in. So uh, one other thing we do in our family is um, we have a lot of candles in our house, um, and we have incandescent lighting in our house exclusively because incandescent lighting is warm. But Every night we eat by candlelight, and I don't mean like a big candelabra. We have a candle in the middle of our table, and we lower the lights in our house. And the reason we do that is that that warm light, that candle light, uh, has this powerful ability to put into the background some aspects of your environment and only help you to focus on what's near in your environment. So it has this ability to be able to to allow you to focus on the people that are at the table and not what else is going on uh, outside of that. And it's warm. So it creates a kind of a calming, relaxed place. That creates the atmosphere uh, to be able to focus on each other and focus on Jesus. I know it sounds funny that lighting a candle would do that, but if you light a candle and lower the lights, it does allow you to shut out some of the stimuli that you're getting. And, you know, a similar idea is that um, we play music in the background of our home a I lot. I love this idea. Because it helps to um, do away with some of the background noise and give give the whole family its own little soundtrack. And, um, you know, we started this when our kids were little, so they have no choice. But we play um, jazz, but kind of classic jazz, not smooth jazz or anything like that, but the hardcore jazz and and some R&B sometimes when we're a little more lively. But my kids have grown up listening to jazz. So they're, they're like the only kids at their school who know who <laughs> John Coltrane is. So, uh, and they, yeah, they, they do know this music and they've come to love this music, even though it's not popular with, you know, they also listen to popular music too. But when they're at home, they've been acclimated to this environment where where we listen to jazz, and it helps to shut out some of the other distractions that are going on and give our whole family kind of a focal point. And again, it sounds funny. It's the same thing as the candle idea, but it allows you to focus a little bit, a little bit more in your environment, and it it allows me to relax and make myself present to Jesus in these little gap moments. I might steal that one from you. Um, I am very distracted by my body image issues. So one of the things that 
crowds my mind um, is just a, a total focus on not feeling like I'm thin enough or, you know, all those things that girls girls um, go through. And so one of the, the things, and this was actually straight out of um, reading Jesus-Centered Life um, for me, was I stopped dieting and I started focusing on what Jesus wanted me to put in my body. Um, and I started doing this thing. I love meal planning. I do it every single week. I get out all my cookbooks and I, I spend time with it. It's something I enjoy doing. And I instead started just writing the days of the week down and just asking Jesus to fill in um, the dinner plan and just letting him drive that. And it was really, I've learned a lot about him um, from that. Um, he'll say things like, you know, you're, you've got a really busy schedule this week. And I think that you just need to focus on crockpot recipes because <laughs> you're going to be too stressed out. And he, it's like, wow, I didn't even look at my schedule. Yeah, I do have a really busy week this week. And so um, so I've just been letting him guide that. Um, and, and it's helped me to stop paying attention to the way that I feel about my body and to just really zone in on the things that he cares about. And I'm learning he doesn't really care that much about my body. He cares more about um, my emotions and how I'm going to feel. And he cares more about the time um, that I'm going to have. And, um, and so that's really actually been very healing for me. So that's that's something that I do is I just – I let Jesus kind of be involved in something that I have always kept him out of. I think that's a fantastic example of something even bigger, which is very simply inviting Jesus into everything. So when we are used to making our own decisions or used to brainstorming our own way out of something or used to facing our own challenges, we stop and we invite him instead. You said, I just asked him. So that's just letting Jesus be a good shepherd— it's saying, I am a sheep, I accept your description of me, Jesus, and I see you as my good shepherd, so I'm looking to you to guide and lead me mm-hmm. in every little thing, <laughs> because yeah. that's what sheep do, they let the shepherd guide them in every little thing, and it's such a playful, childlike thing to do, which is why Jesus said, if you want to live a life of faith, you're going to have to be like a child. And I actually, a friend of mine, we did this experiment together when we first started it, and we did a two-part podcast series on it. And I'll go ahead and link to those podcasts on this page if you want to hear a little bit more about how that journey went. Um, our our two-week diet experiment <laughs> with Jesus is what we called it. Good. So if you want to learn more about that, we'll have that on episode two's page. Let's give you a couple more uh, before we uh, uh, sign off this podcast. So here's something that I do all the time. It's very simple. I, uh, I, if I'm paying attention to what's going on in myself during the day, my anxiety level, um, the challenges that I feel, especially the, let's just say, especially the anxiety level, when am I starting to feel anxious? Um, I'm starting to learn to recognize that when it, when it comes up in me, and I will just say, simply say this, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Or Jesus, I give this to you. Or Jesus, I need your help. Um, it's very simple. I say it under my breath, but it's a response to my anxiety level. So when I, and I told people, I, we have a small group that meets in our house every Tuesday night of teenagers, and I've, I'm trying to help them learn how to do this in their everyday life because school is really stressful, produces yeah, a is. lot of anxiety. So I'm saying to them, hey, when you feel that anxiety rise up in you, no matter where you are, you can say under your breath, Jesus, have mercy on me. All it does is it reconnects us back to Jesus, 
and recognizes our dependence on him and asks him for help in these little micro moments, it's made a huge difference in my ability to move through my life non-anxiously. So that's, that, that's easy to do. Uh, so the last thing is don't be surprised when you start talking to Jesus a lot. Um, if he says things like, that's none of your business and don't worry about that. He does that a lot, especially in my marriage. Um, and the thing about this, this, this one is really important. There are a lot of things that we worry about that are not our job. They're his job. And so pay attention when he says that to you. If he says, I don't want you to worry about that. I don't want you to worry about that. That's none of your business. And he may not say that's none of your business, but I think he likes to talk to me the way that I talk. So that's how I talk. Um, but I think that what, what, what he's showing us there is let me have these things. I don't want you to bear them. I want you to give this up. So, And just as a biblical affirmation of that, um, we know Jesus has already saying stuff like this to his disciples, because we know that, uh, I think it was James and John who who said to Jesus when they were walking somewhere, they were talking to them about the future, and they said to Jesus, hey, what about that guy? What's going to happen with him? And Jesus said, essentially, none of your business. None of your business. That's not your story. Let's talk about your story. Stop worrying about his story. So we know Jesus already has a value ar- around this, that he's going to say none of your business often about the things we get kind of wrapped up in. So there's a few few things that you can try. You can catch the gist, the spirit of these things. We're not saying exactly try these things. We're saying experiment with things that reconnect you with Jesus and help you to remain in him, help you to abide in him, Take advantage of your gap times. Look at your normal momentums and see how you can shift the focus just a little bit so that you keep the same energy going, but now you're focused a little bit more on Jesus. And you know what? Maybe share your ideas with us. Yeah. Go to Jesus Centered Life Facebook page. Would love it. Write write some stuff to us. You probably have better ideas than Rick and I, so we would love to hear them. Write them on our page and we'll share them. Yeah, we'd love that. Remember, you can uh, find out a lot more information about this here um, and get even more detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com. So you can find our podcast section and go to episode two um, if you want to listen to this thing again. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcast, podcasts, and we'll talk next time. Bye.